The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein broadcasting live from the New York metropolitan area here in Yonkers, New York. And uh, today's show is a treat because we are talking about a topic that is um, very close to archaeology debatably uh, very, very intricately related to archaeology and is to some degree, and maybe my guest has a little bit of a different perspective, sort of an amusing and entertaining and uh, actually very compelling story about how people get interested in archaeology and it looks at uh, the unusual exploits of archaeologists archaeologists and folks that cast themselves as explorers and historians and people relating, related to the uncovery of ant- and discovery of antiquities. My guest is nothing else if not an eclectic individual. This is, uh, he is Wayne Termel, and he comes from a very, very unique background. He uh, was a stand-up comic for a very long time and then uh, rejiggered his career, reshifted his career into uh, getting into the development and the training and development fields and uh, has been involved in podcasting and in uh, delivering uh, speeches in the development field for many years and also has developed a unique relationship with an antiquarian that is known in archaeological circles, not so much anymore, but certainly was known in the middle 20th century, and that is the uh, Count Byron Kuhn de Prorock. So it is my pleasure to introduce my special guest, Wayne Termel. Wayne, welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I actually enjoy the show, so that's uh, it's it's doubly nice. Uh, that's wonderful, and, and we appreciate that. So, I would like for you, if you would, uh, to give us sort of a little thumbnail sketch 
on how your career has involved, evolved because you've you're, you're got so many areas in which you have done things and you're, uh, certainly your development is an unusual trajectory and one that uh, I think archaeologists would be interested to learn about because many of us also have, for lack of a better word, followed unorthodox uh, guidelines for developing careers and for ending up in a profession that is to say the least very unusual. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into interfingering, shall we say, with archaeology in the way that you do? Sure. Well, it's not so much that I am intricately laced with archaeology, except as it came to uh, the research for the book. Uh, growing up in Canada, a kid in Canada, I've actually always been really passionate about archaeology. It's always fascinated me. Uh, you know, your guest a couple of weeks ago was talking about the movie image of the archaeologist as right. this mix of brawn and action and really smart guys. And, and as a kid, you know, I had sticker books about the ancient Greeks and the Romans and all the ruins and, you know, had all of these kind of fantasies about uh, being that kind of, of archaeologist until I spent a summer digging drainage ditch and mm-hmm. realized that real archaeology contains the two things that I hate maybe most in this world, which are attention to detail and shoveling. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> I was never going to be an archaeologist. So Understood. I spent the last... 20 years of my life in the training and development field, uh, you know, teaching primarily communication, presentation uh, type leadership skills. And the other fascination that kind of led me to this is the connection between people's reputation as an orator, as a public speaker, is the ability to communicate being confused with them being really smart or good at their job. Good point. Good point. But tell tell and, us a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Please. What were you going to ask me? It's your no. Show. So I, I would like to know how you go from. First of all, I'm fascinated with uh, with your initial career. I guess it's your initial career as a comedian. How did you break into that? And how do you segue from comedy to training and development to a fascination with archaeology? I'm just curious as, as to how you did that. Because we have a lot of people who are in our profession who, like I said before, uh, sort of mm-hmm. transition very easily into different fields and end up in, into archaeology because they say, well, this is ultimately where I wanted to go. You're obviously looking at it a little bit differently, but uh, give us give us a sketch on that. Sure. Well, uh, growing up in Canada, I graduated high school and I started doing stand-up comedy. It was the very early 80s. It was the beginning of the comedy boom. And, you know, comedy clubs were popping up like mushrooms. And uh, so I I actually put myself through college as a broadcast journalism major uh, doing stand-up. And then uh, moved to Toronto, lived in Toronto for several years, was headlining nightclubs. Actually opened uh, for some big bands like Hall & Oates and Chicago and... Uh, got it in my head that, you know, it was time to move to L.A. to be a big star. And I moved to Los Angeles in 1991, uh, and about six months later, two-thirds of the comedy clubs in the country closed. Right. And so a couple of years later, there I am with a wife and a kid, and, you know, it was time to run away from the circus and get a job. Well, I right. spent the last 18 years talking in front of drunk people for a living. That's a fairly substantial <laughs> hole in a resume. Yeah, right. 
Uh, so I found the one job which entailed the one skill I possessed, which is the ability to stand at the front of the room and speak and help others do that. So I moved into the training business and found out I was really, A, kind of good at it, and B, really loved it. And I started writing and publishing and uh, you know, went to work for several big training companies, uh, training around the world, and then finally, for the last mm, eight years, I've had my own training and consulting company, uh, primarily focusing around the ability to deliver webinars and lead remote teams and, and that kind of thing, but all stemming from this interest in communication and, and how that impacts people's image. So, you know, I'd like to ask you a question about that, because uh, while we're on this topic, I have heard say, uh, if we look at some of the famous comedians that, uh, that we've known in our time, Letterman, Carson, people like that, that uh, comedians are generally very shy. Is that true? Is that uh, something that, that you're familiar with, or is that characteristic of your own self? I mean, how is that? Well, it certainly can be. I mean, it, you know, if you were to do a Myers-Briggs on me, I, people think I am much more of an extrovert than, in fact, I am. And as I get older and grayer, I become more and more introverted all the time. I, I, I think that that's partly true, but I think it's also because there's such a dichotomy between what people see and the assumptions they make and then how the person really is. I mean, if you're going to be a successful comedian, you need to go up on stage and talk in front of people. Well, the number one fear, as we all know, is glossophobia, which is speaking in front of people. Right. So if you can go to the front of the room and speak and make people laugh and, and do those things, people make some assumptions about what you must be like, right? You must be this incredible extrovert. You must be funny all the time. You must be all this stuff. And in fact, the comedians that I know run the gamut from, you know, somewhere on the autism spectrum to just wildly out of control, just right. like everybody else that we know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's a really important thing as we, we think about comedians and we think about uh, media figures and we think about these folks that there is a public perception which may or may not be accurate as to what the person is really like. And if you can leverage that perception for everything it's worth, you can be wildly successful in this society, as, you know, Byron de Prorock was for a short time. He was a media superstar because people saw something in him that they had never seen before. And, and so let's... Let's figure out how that led you into looking at him. And uh, were you just, because I, I was looking at your bio and looking at a couple of things, and you're, all, you're, you're doing a lot of things that do clearly have connections from one to the other. And I think most of us in this day and age understand that uh, people's careers are shifted by a lot of different circumstances, not the least of which is economics, but also because they're driven uh, by their own interests to uh, to move around a little bit and so you've got this training career you had the comedy career you had the training career and then all of a sudden a fascination with Byron Q and Pro Rock how did that work well I've always been a voracious reader and a history geek and I also kind of go through periods of fascination in what I read about and I went through a period about five years ago where I was reading all of these first-hand accounts of explorers, 
uh, mostly the African explorers, you know, Samuel Baker and Sir Richard Francis Burton and, and, and those types of folks. And in a half-price bookstore in Wheaton, Illinois, I came across a couple of books. One was called Dead Men Do Tell Tales, and the other one was In Quest of Lost Worlds. And I thought, oh, this sounds interesting, and okay, seems like an interesting guy. And the books were fascinating. I mean, they were obviously probably 60-40 true to complete nonsense, but fascinating. And in the back of the editions that I read was an autographical, or a biographical essay, forgive me, uh, by a, a really good researcher to whom I owe everything about the book, uh, a guy named Michael Tarabolsky, who was an archivist at Boy College at, at one point in his career. And mm. he, had, he wrote what is the only biography that exists of, of this amazing character, which is one chapter, essentially. It's a one-chapter essay in the back of these books. And I just got fascinated uh, you know, here was this larger-than-life character uh, who ultimately became the, the focus of my novel, uh, you know, The Count of the Sahara, who was just everything that I found fascinating in human nature. He was a fabulously smart guy. I mean, he really was. He spoke multiple languages. He knew a little bit about everything He was a charismatic stage performer. He could charm the pants off of almost anybody. He was, and we all have friends like this who might be completely full of hooey, but they're a good hang, so we, you know, we tolerate them. There was a lot of that. That's called public relations. Exactly, and I became absolutely fascinated with him. He kind of goes into that pantheon of, of historical characters who have all the tools to be wildly successful and can't get out of their own way. That's right, and it was a time also when these explorations and uh, these uh, ventures into the unknown were basically capturing the imagination of a lot of people, and he obviously was one of those people who said, okay, I'm going to do it, and using the set of traits and the the personality that he had, he certainly developed a lot of trust in in a lot of important people, and he he set off on all these, these expeditions. And obviously, it, it, it caught your fancy. So let's get back to your having read these books, your having been motivated by reading them, and then where do we go? Well, I was reaching, you know, in my early 50s, and it was, okay, what are you going to do with the next chapter? And, of course, I'm still doing training and consulting because, uh, you know, a guy's got to make a living. Uh, sure. But I really had always wanted – I've – done seven nonfiction books, but I really wanted to do a novel. I wasn't going to be a real writer <laughs> until uh, I had accomplished that. And here was this great story. You know, there's the story of the expedition itself, and then as a character, there's this fascinating character with a very quick rise and fall. And so I spent most of the last year and a half researching and digging into it and then eventually writing the book until The Count of the Sahara came out uh, this summer. So, and so uh, yeah, that, go that, ahead, I'm sorry. That's kind of where it all came together. 
And so you did a fair amount of intensive research on this, obviously. And um, it's he's not a character, really, that's extremely well-known in archaeological circles. Um, but he is known, for sure. And uh, very often when we talk about some of the expeditions that he got involved in, his name does come up because, if nothing else, he sort of paved the way to looking at some of these long-standing quasi-mythical problems in in archaeology, one of which, of course, is the Atlantis situation, which I think was his first one, right? Well, here's the thing. Um, And you can't talk about Byron and and this period without thinking about the time period. It was kind of the perfect storm because it was the first time in American culture that we were starting to get media celebrities. Uh, the boom of film and the ease of travel allowed it allowed people like him to become well known, uh, and and he was very well known for giving these amazing uh, lectures in fairly small markets. So he'd go to the Midwest and travel through Iowa and Illinois and Wisconsin and whatever. And he had all this film that he had taken. And he was actually quite an innovator in terms of using aerial photography and underwater photography. And I wish it were for great scientific reasons, but the fact is it made a better show. <laughs> and that was always his, uh, his goal, right? He wanted to give wildly successful lectures so that people would love it and think he was smart and pay him more money to do bigger and better lectures. It was kind of this right. uh, machine that needed to be fed. And, right. and okay. so the, the 20s were kind of the perfect time for this. He was, you know, if you go into his biography, and I, you know, I'll gladly go wherever you want to go, but he was this fascinating character to Midwestern America who had never seen anything like him. Plus, he had film of Tuareg warriors and digging in expeditions. And you have to remember that this was about three years after Howard Carter had exploded on the scene with the Tuckett Tut, uh, expedition. Right. And so archaeology was a hot subject. Uh, film was something new, but it was coming to these uh, smaller markets. He was a great showman, and he'd just been splashed all over the front page of the New York Times for three months because this expedition had gotten just outsized uh, coverage. We're going to have to take a break at this point, but we will be right back after these words with our special guest, Wayne Turmel, and our discussion on the entertainer slash archaeologist slash adventurer, Byron Kuhn to Pro Rock, right after these words. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. 
Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is, this is Joe Schuldenrein back with uh, an episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And we're going to focus a little bit on myth, a little bit of re- on reality. And um, my guest is um, Wayne Termel, who has written a, a volume, a, a recently released book, on a famous antiquarian and adventurer, uh, Byron Kuhn de Prorock who was skyrocketed into fame in the 1920s and essentially had done all of his work um, by as when he was a young man. He died uh, in his 50s. And uh, as we were talking during the break, um, Wayne, one of the interesting things that you brought up was how he was a product of the times. And you had mentioned the Howard Carter expeditions and certainly the explosion of film onto the scene. This was also the time when the talkies came out, when all those horror movies came out, The Mummy, which clearly had archaeological implications. And you're telling me that he capitalized on this and that he essentially um, generated his message initially to the small town America, to Midwest, where people were starting to get exposed to these sorts of things. Why don't you pick it up from that point and get into how he organized his expeditions and how how he capitalized and essentially funded uh, funded his work and got into this incredible public relations element of it where he was able to gather money and support to do uh, work that was, if not interesting, then you pick it up from there. <laughs> right. Well, it's kind of interesting that this is the 90th anniversary of the expedition that made him famous. Uh, matter of fact, I was just speaking last week at the Logan Museum in Beloit. Uh, and it's uh-huh. strange that this little uh, college in, you know, Nowheresville, Wisconsin, is so tied to the New York Times and, and this, this outsized character. What happened was Byron left college before he got his degree, and he started digging in Carthage and actually was working on 
some very, very respected uh, dig sites under very respected professors. And because he could speak terrific English and he was tall and good-looking and young and kind of uh, a perfect specimen at first glance, he developed this reputation as being an expert on ancient Carthage. And the press loved him, and he started to uh, develop this outsized reputation, and his lectures started to draw way more than lectures about, you know, is this Dido's, uh, you know, is this Queen Dido's makeup pot that I hold in my hand should ever right. generate. Right. And, and so he became very big, very fast. And what happened is the Times was looking for an expedition to kind of cover because of the general interest. And there hadn't been anything since Tut that really struck the chord. Well, Byron was looking to have his own expedition to lead his own show. Uh, Beloit College had arranged with the Musée d'Alger to go into Algeria and dig on some of these sites, but they were having trouble getting the permits and coming up with the money. And, and so what happened is there was this perfect storm where by a series of social connections, which is how he functioned, the Times was interested in him leading an expedition. Beloit College couldn't really do what they wanted to on their own without some help. Renault, the motor car company, had designed these desert vehicles that they were eager to road test. And so it came together where Beloit would only get the permits to dig if they went with the Pro Rock. Uh, Renault was willing to provide the vehicles. The Musée d'Alger was involved. And, and so it all came together as long as Byron was the titular head and the New York Times could trek along. And so from October to the end of November of 1925, this expedition, which really wasn't going after anything particularly huge, and you know we can go into the details of that, was front-page news in the New York Times, which meant, because this was also the beginning of the wire services, right. uh, front-page news across small-town America. And so, so, so he... he yeah. Okay. He took star. off, and and where did he, he started off on the North African coast? Yeah, they started in Constantine, Algeria, and the goal was to go down to what was largely unexplored territory, although it was French held, uh, in the uh, Hogart region of of southern Algeria, and specifically they were looking for the tomb of uh, a mythical queen, Tin Hanan who was the supposed mother of the Tuareg people. And so there was a tomb. They knew that there was a holy site down there. They knew there was a tomb. Everybody and their dog pretty much just assumed that it was Tin Hanan's tomb. And so, you know, they did some uh, work along the way that was satisfying Alonzo Pond and the Logan Museum's needs. But really, he was just in a hurry to get there and raid the tomb. Uh, as a matter of fact, the term Tomb Raider has been applied to him uh, to the point where some people think he actually inspired Indiana Jones, which I think is a stretch. But, uh, you know, it was all about get to the Hogar Mountains, find the tomb, uh, make the front page of the Times, and get back in time for the winter lecture circuit. <laughs> so the, all these factors worked into into his clear uh, timing and, and the fact that 
he was able to sort of conflate all these motivations so that he could essentially put together the perfect project. Which would have been great had it been the perfect project and not a complete train wreck, which, in fact, it was. Um, so what I'd like you to do, actually, if you would, mm-hmm. is on this particular project, which I think is probably uh, next to the one with the mines, is probably the, the big one for him. Give us some of the background to the actual nuts and bolts of doing this thing. I mean, he raises the money. um he gets the car company, the Renault car company, to do it. And then what kind of what kind of a team did he put together? What kind of... I mean, th- this was very much, as you say, unexplored territory. I mean, you're going into very, very crazy terrain here. And how it did he was, do that? It, well, it was an interesting team because all these people wanted to go... You know, all these different parties wanted to be involved in some way. And so this was the one trip where all the stars aligned. Uh, so let me give you the players. Uh, first, there was the Pro Rock, who you know, was attached to absolutely nobody. Uh, the eminence grease of all this, and the guy who ultimately was the biggest problem on the trip was the French representative from the Musée d'Algier, who was a gentleman named Maurice Regas, who was just widely despised by everybody. But he held the power. He controlled the digging rights. He controlled the ability to get passes through the region. He had the uh, relationships with the local tribes and suppliers so that the supplies could be laid out and they could uh, do everything. And, and then there was the Logan Museum, and in particular, two representatives of the Logan Museum. One was a, a rich American dilettante a guy named Brad Terrell, who was basically there to look after the Logans' money. And he was a rich guy who'd always wanted to go on a dig, and this was short, and he'd be home in time to join his wife in uh, Palm Beach for Christmas. Uh, right. The, the real work was going to be done by somebody that your listeners are probably familiar with, a, a gentleman named Alonzo Pond, who was a graduate student at, at Beloit College, right. and who was working very diligently on kind of the Neolithic uh, you know, tribes that had lived there. Uh, he, he was big on counting flints and, and pictographs and that kind of thing. And his work had started with Native Americans in Wisconsin and kind of the correlation between the Neolithic peoples in the Americas and people in the Sahara. And he was really the only archaeologist, true archaeologist scientist on the trip. And, right. you know... As a writer, the, the differences between Pond and De Rock were so stark. And, and when I was going through the research at Beloit College, and blessings upon them for letting this complete amateur rummage through their, their files, um, it, it was very obvious that these are two just completely different people with completely different attitudes. Whereas Byron was all about never let the facts get in the way of a good story, Pond was extremely extremely methodical and, you know, uh, scientific to a fault and uh, extremely concerned with the good science. And uh, sadly, I think it's illustrative of what happens in science, which is, you know, the audience and the money tend to follow the people who can tell a good story, not the people who are right. It's a traditional problem. 
in archaeology and one that we're confronting much more frequently these days as essentially a lot of research money is drying up for us and yep. we are increasingly dependent on things like you're touching on, specifically public relations skills, the ability to do public outreach and to communicate with the public and to have a certain amount of trust. I will say at this point that uh, the fact that he was allied with Pond and, and the Logan Museum, I mean, Lloyd College is a small place in, in Wisconsin, but it is a very well-known department yep. and the Logan Museum is really a, has a long history of doing very, very good work. So, and if, if your readers or your listeners are able to do it, the uh, 90th anniversary uh, exhibit that they've put up at the Logan, I was just up there last week, is uh-huh. superb. It's a really good piece of work that documents uh, this trip. And, of course, Pond is the hero of that particular story, uh, but it's a really excellent exhibit, and they did really, really good work. So tell us a little bit about the dynamics between these two people and these two uh, uh, obviously widely divergent types and how they got along and and how this thing emerged, because I think that's fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. They were the original odd couple. And, you know, just to give you an idea, Byron de Prorock was uh, 30 years old. He was six feet, six one, beautiful head of hair. Uh, never had a seam out of place, spoke multiple languages, could charm anybody, uh, and was making really good money on the lecture circuit. Alonzo Pond was twice the archaeologist that <laughs> the Rock could ever be. He was 5'2", he was hairy, he was a good speaker, but not a great speaker, certainly not dynamic. And as I went through the, the archives, I was looking for a way to tell this story, and it occurred to me, and this is a really bizarre analogy, but it hit me like a ton of bricks as I was going through it. There's a great story. Uh, Prorock is eager to get back to America because he's making you know, $200 a night in 1926 giving lectures. And Pond writes to his boss, Dr. Colley at, at the Logan and says, hey, this is really good stuff. You know, I'll bet I could get some lectures, maybe even make a hundred bucks a night. So right. here's Pond, who's envious of DePro-Rock's success and a little bewildered by it, frankly, because he realizes the guy doesn't really know what he's talking about and he's a little <laughs> shady. But right. he's excited because his own career is about to take off. And I found a letter from Colley to Pond that basically said, don't worry about the lecture tour. We're going to send you straight from Algeria to a dig in Poland. And so, uh, De Prorok was had Polish connections, didn't he? Well, but you know, it was completely unconnected. They, they, they weren't uh-huh. connected. The two things, except that here, you know, De Prorok was about to go back and make all this money on this tour, and Pond, who thought this was going to be the launching pad for his career, spent you know, five more months in Algeria cataloging arrowheads and then going to, you know, some swamp in Poland to dig and never got his career off to the start he wanted. And as I was reading this, what it occurred to me is this is Amadeus in the desert. <laughs> if you think right. about it, yeah, who yeah, was Salieri? Salieri yeah. was the good, hardworking, respectable uh you know, perfectly good composer. Salieri was a good composer. 
but he was constantly overshadowed by this fly-by-night flake, whatever. And that was the dynamic that, you know, when you're writing a novel, you're trying to find a way to illustrate the story. And so the differences between Pond and, and De Pro Rock were really stark. Now, you asked me, what did he think of him? Well, it's interesting. There's a letter, just as Pro Rock is being disgraced in the press and discounted, and his findings are being thrown into uh, disrepute, and he had actually created an international incident to the point where Beloit College was not going to be allowed to do any more work, and it took the full weight of the U.S. State Department and President Calvin Coolidge to cut through the red tape. Really? Really. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, that's a cool story in its own. But it was such a nightmare. And yet there was a letter from Pond that said, look, DeProrock is a liar and a charlatan and a bit of a flake, and I don't trust him as far as I could throw him. But you know what? I kind of like him. So he sort of uh, he sort of uh, superimposed his charm on the operation, obviously, and it's probably a little symbiotic that each one realized that he needed the other in order to make this thing work, because the yep. risks were great and the success was essentially dependent on the fact that these guys have got to stick together, even though one hates the other, one distrusts the other. They're they're in too deep, as it were, right? Well, I think that's part of it. Uh, I think, although certainly they weren't together that long. I mean, they were only together for this one trip. And, right, and, right. And this letter, I mean, Pond was sitting in Insula, Algeria, you know, cataloging arrowheads and doing all the, the grunt work while Byron was out on this uh, victory tour. But the letters basically said, he's a pain in the neck and he's messed things up and it's awful. But you know I kind of like him. He's a good guy. And, yeah. and actually what, what made the difference is that where they were united is they both really, really hated Maurice Regat, uh-huh. who had essentially sabotaged, uh, in many ways, the trip by uh, not doing his job, riding herd on the suppliers so that the expedition was constantly running out of gas and running out of food and you know, well was, well let me ask you this uh, what was the upshot of all of this what did what came what did what does one come away with uh, archaeologically and generally uh, from this particular expedition well it, it's a bit of a wreck and and the reputation of the expedition far outweighs any real archaeological significance uh, the big thing was, of course, that they had supposedly found the tomb of Tin Hanan. And there's no guarantee that that even happened. They certainly found a tomb. They found a body. Um, Pond, to the day he died, did not really believe they had found Tin Hanan because the pelvis was too small. He felt they had found the body of a teenage boy, a prince, a young king, uh-huh. whatever. But... Because the New York Times said it was the queen of the Tuaregs, because the Algerian Museum had such a vested... To this day, you cannot do DNA samples or close examination of the bones. Really? Really. Uh, the Algerian government has such a stake in protecting the reputation of the trip and the fact that they have claimed that this is Tin Hanan that they went to the mat to protect it. Wow. 
And Back to so, stranger than it, fiction. So it created this, I mean, the local tribes went crazy because if this was their queen, her body just went to Paris. <laughs> it was smuggled out in the dead of night. Um, right. The, the Times had reported they'd found all this treasure, and they'd found essentially one gold earring, 14 bracelets, and a bunch of polished stones. <laughs> now, to, to, you know, and of course, Byron's response, and this is exactly what the kind of guy he was, he always said this was the greatest find since Howard Carter. Well, that may technically have been true because nobody found anything since Howard Carter. Right, so I guess the Times had an out on that, right? Well, the Times had an out. The problem was the Algerian government, the French government, everybody went, okay, where's the treasure? Right. And we and will come so back with went this. Out that We're going to have to take a break. It. We're going to have to take a break, and uh, we'll be back with this very fascinating discussion on the Count Byron Kuhn de Prorock with our guest Wayne Jamel after these words don't go anywhere stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back, and we are discussing the Count Byron Kuhn de Prorock with his biographer and novelist and jack-of-all-trades, Mr. Wayne Termel. The book has been published, and it is called The Count of the Sahara, 
We've been talking about the exploits of Byron Kuhn de Pro Rock with, uh, with Wayne Termel. And uh, what I'd like to enter into at the suggestion of Wayne, which I think is, is a very, very intriguing point, is a pop culture, archaeology, and showmanship, if you will, uh, which is what this particular period in archaeological history um, or presentation of archaeological history brings to mind. So, Wayne, why don't you just discuss that? I think it's an excellent point and one that our audience should, uh, should get familiar with. Well, I think that for your audience, they're familiar with the, the inherent craziness that is trying to popularize science, right? And, and for every Neil deGrasse Tyson who, or Carl Sagan who, who popularizes it in a responsible way, more or less, there is the crazy person. I mean, Byron aspired to be the Neil deGrasse Tyson of you know, 1920s archaeology, who he really turned into was Giorgio Sakalas. Uh-huh. And for those of you who don't know Giorgio Sakalas, he's the guy on the History Channel who just basically every archaeological site was created by aliens. Right. Okay. <laughs> the idea of the alien architects and all that stuff. And, and Byron right. had his own crazy theories, right? He believed the reason nobody had found Atlantis is it was, in fact, under the Sahara Desert. That, you know, they were looking for it underwater, but the Sahara had, at one point, had water. And so he believed that. In the next expedition, in the early 30s, he went to Ethiopia, or Abyssinia, as it was then known, to discover King Solomon's mines and claims to have found them. Um, and, you know, had, and had the attention of Haile Selassie at the time, right? Had the attention of Haile Selassie. Actually, there's probably another book there, although I'm not the guy to write it. You can imagine he's trying to work his way through not only the, the situation with Haile Selassie, but it was occupied territory by the Italians. So he had to charm the Italian uh, you know, soldiers and, and army and work his way through. And it's a brilliant piece of social networking. It's a horrible piece of archaeology. Of course. You know, but this was his thing. Byron wanted to be a star more than he wanted to be a good archaeologist. And, and the best way to put this is, how many archaeologists do you know have two IMDb pages? Right. Good point. <laughs> and he does. If you go on IMDb, there is... But do we uh, call him an archaeologist or just a popular, popularizer? Well, I guess he's a popularizer. And, and this was the other thing. He called himself an archaeologist. You know, I dig, I find stuff, I show people I am an archaeologist. Um, and he did dig. I mean, he, he did much of his own grunt work. But anybody who was respectable washed their hands of him very quickly. Uh, you know, Byron was one of these guys, he'd have dinner with somebody at the Oriel Institute in Chicago, and the next thing you know, he's associated with the Oriental Institute of Chicago. And it made people right. crazy. Uh, the Smithsonian, the National Geographic Society, the Royal Geogra Geological Society in the UK, all of them could not wash their hands of him fast enough. Uh, you know, just the, the kind of stench of him, particularly when the social scandal broke about his title not being necessarily legitimate and his divorce from his society wife and all of that stuff, which led to his downfall. The, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how, how that all emerged? 
Yeah, well, when he was a young, hot, good-looking, famous guy, he married Alice Kinney, and her father, Bill Kinney, was a self-made Tammany Hall millionaire, best friend of Mayor and Governor Al Smith, who became just crazy rich, and married his daughter to this uh, charlatan, and then spent two years trying to break down the break down the uh, the marriage. He hired Pinkertons to follow him and all of that. And the papers in New York, particularly the Brooklyn Eagle, who had loved this young couple, uh, couldn't the throw them under pages, the bus fast right? enough. They were in the Pardon society me? page. They, they were, were in the, the society s- pages every week. Uh-huh. And they couldn't throw them under the bus fast enough <laughs> when things started to go south. Uh, and, you know, Bill Kenny was largely responsible for Byron getting out of Algeria alive because he threw the weight of the best lawyers in Europe and paid the Algerian officials and did everything that they had to do. But once all of that hubbub died down, the family washed their hands of him. And he, uh, his two children were, in fact, taken away, and he saw them, I think, once more in his life. Uh, after the marriage dissolved. Uh, but Byron wanted to be a star. You know, if you go on IMDb, he has a, uh, a page as an actor. He's uh, Byron Francis Kuhn, his, his birth name. And he was an actor in a French movie called Rose France. He's labeled as Red Indian. That was his big part. Uh, mm-hmm. But then years later, in 1930, there's a badly spelled entry where he's Baron Francis de Prorac, uh, where he actually uh, directed a film called In Quest of Lost Gods. And one of the intriguing things that I found in the archives is there is a Hollywood producer that I've never heard of, uh, a, a, a pair of wannabe Hollywood producers, that he was in contact with and kept dragging Beloit College in. These producers kept contacting Beloit College, saying, when can we go on a film shoot with you guys? And they went, who are you? So Byron was trying to work movie deals. And that kind of celebrity culture had never existed before the 20s. So it was a perfect storm. You know, Byron wanted to be a star. He wanted to be known, and his reputation as a scientist or as an archaeologist or a popularizer was only a stepping stone to that stardom, and unfortunately he missed the next step, which kind of makes it a tragic story and makes for a good novel. (laughs) Was was he brought down because too many reputable scientists basically had the nerve or the gumption to expose him? Yeah, um... You know, when he had society backing and all the money, people would just quietly, you know, the National Geographic Society would tell him, oh, you know, nothing for you this year, maybe next year, right? Uh, But when everything went wrong and he kind of fell into public disgrace, all bets were off. And so the Smithsonian and the Nat Geo and all of these different people basically were free to publicly rid themselves of this nuisance. Right, but but what was there a single episode or a single incident that actually led to his downfall, or what was it? No, it was the death of a thousand cuts. Um, you know, uh-huh. it was the scandal of 
did he either you know rob the grave or lied about what was in it. Uh, he had created this international incident, so he was persona non grata in North Africa because none of the French colonies would have anything to do with him. That's why he wound up going to Ethiopia. Um, publicly, his image was tarnished because as part of the divorce proceedings, it was revealed that his title of count was from an adopted uncle who kind of sort of gave it to him, but after the First World War, the title didn't mean anything anyway. Uh, uh-huh. So it was this death of a thousand cuts that just undermined him. Now, he maintained a, you know, he worked until the day he died. His four books were very popular. He continued to work, but by the 1950s, he was reduced to, you know, doing luncheon lectures at the Portland, Oregon Knife and Fork Club, uh, (laughs) where he not only had all of his old films, but he talked about his experiences in the French underground during the Second World War. Yeah. Which was, yeah. <laughs> Which was clearly <laughs> also made-up stuff. Uh, well, you can draw your own conclusions. Of course, uh, of course. As a matter of fact, Michael Tarabolsky, who continues to do research into Byron, is actually going through the Department of Defense records right now, seeing if there's any legitimacy to his claim that he was affiliated with American forces in France. Really? I wouldn't bet on it. No. But it, based on what you're saying, great clearly story. not. So what about his la- that, so that's what happened to him in his later days? Did he remarry? Did he He married at least 3 times that we know of. Uh, didn't have any more children. As I say, his children were taken away from him and adopted by the mother's grandparents, actually, and even had their names changed so as not to bear the stink of the Rock name. Uh, uh, he got married at least three more times, uh, at least once to, uh, well, they were all rich women, surprise, surprise. Uh, he lived the rest of his life in Europe mostly, and, and went to America only to tour. And sadly, in 1950, help, I'm blanking, I want to say 54, uh, he was found uh, drunk and ill on a train going to Paris and passed away as a result of, uh, you know, a combination of booze and nembatol. And so that's how he met his, his end. And that's how he met his end, yeah. He died alone a in a Paris hospital. He was a young man. He was. He was. He was two Did years he... older than me. Thank you for bringing that up. Right. <laughs> I just did the math. I just went, oh, my gosh, he's not that much older than I am. Uh, yeah, he was in his middle 50s and died largely forgotten. I mean, as you said, there was a time when his name was synonymous with popular archaeology, and none of his films exist. Right. Uh, nobody has ever found his personal archives. So you were saying that, that he is sort of a uh, product, if you will, of, of popular culture, and you would draw some analogies with, uh, with the contemporary uh, entertainment and pop, pop culture figures and, and uh, phenomena. How, how would you yeah, do that? He'd have made a great Kardashian. <laughs> uh, he was willing to do famous or for say being anything. famous, right? He was. He wanted to be famous for being famous. And if you look at his horrible childhood and 
and, you know, his kind of genteel poverty and all these things. Psychologically, it makes perfect sense that he was who he was. And we're going to have to wrap up this very fascinating discussion with, uh, with my very unique um, and an excellent storyteller, as I might say, and and uh, very. I'm sure this is a very entertaining volume, and I think it's something we should all read because it does bring to mind the public relations showmanship slash P.T. Barnum element of of what uh, some archaeologists do get into because it is a very popular field. Uh, Wayne, thank you so much for appearing on the program. Oh, my absolute pleasure. As I say, I enjoy the show, so uh, you know, I'm just. I'm just happy you'll have me. Thanks so much. And until next time, when we, prov- we bring you another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, this is Joe Schuldenrein saying good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.